You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Kiefer, with another episode of Body IO FM and your co host, Rocky Patel. Hey there, Kiefer. And this is our first show where we have a sponsor, actually. We are now sponsored by Hylete Clothing. That's at Hylete.com. They've got some of the best fitting gear. If you have any type of an athletic build whatsoever, uh, they've got just the best fitting gear I've ever had. So I highly recommend checking them out. Uh, We'll have links on the site for them pretty soon. And... On to today's topic, I'm very excited. I got hooked up with, um, I'm not going to call her a researcher, although she does do, you know, she does experiment in her practice with patients that have uh, some sort of mental aberrations. And I don't mean they're psychotic. Uh, We'll, we'll, I'll let her go into more detail later, but this is uh, Regina. Regine Diamond. Uh, I love that name. So go ahead and say hi, Regine. And then uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice and what you do? Sure. Yes, I am Regine Diamond. I did not make up the name. And I am a psychotherapist who specializes in the treatment of panic, panic disorder, OCD, and other anxiety disorders. I've been in practice for 15 years, and I live in South Florida. Wow, that's like the shortest introduction I think anybody's ever given of themselves. Oh, do you want me to go through my CV? <laughs> I can do that. Okay, so no, no. Kiefer might like this. <laughs> no, Kiefer's going to like this because I went to Indiana University. I'm a South Florida native, so let me just start off by saying I was born in Key West, so if I'm a little quirky, forgive me. I was born in Key West, and I grew up in South Florida. I went to Indiana University and got my bachelor's in science, and did, then I went to law school. I was about to ask, and did you? And I got my JD. I went to in uh, at IU. Did you ever go over to the hyper? I sure did, and I ran my little tail off because you know it was all <laughs> calories in, calories out after the freshman fifteen. Right. So yeah, that's before I knew about Kiefer. <laughs> that was a long, long time ago. Have, when was that? I did go to the hyper. I, w- I would go over there all the time and play racquetball. I knew you looked familiar. Yeah, I would tr- now, Kiefer's like a decade <laughs> younger than I, so he doesn't look familiar. <laughs> but no, Indiana was a great school. I loved it. It was a typical Big Ten rah-rah school. Is that where you went to law school? And folks were really nice. Is that where you went to law school? Then I went to law school in Chicago, mm. and I did that. And I actually did um, escape with a JD degree. But no, law school was interesting, I should say. And then I returned to South Florida, and I got a master's um, from Barry University in Miami Shores. And then after working for quite some time, because in my discipline, one has to work for about two years before one can sit for licensure. Of course, we forget everything we learned in school by then, but, you know, that's what Kaplan's for, I guess. And then I took my licensure exam and passed, and soon thereafter, start working with um, another gentleman who specialized with OCD and anxiety disorders, and I've been in that line of um, practice ever since. So what turned you on to, you know, obviously you have uh, have some 
uh, you were basically some cognitive programs to help these people, but you've recently, or maybe not so recently started to, I, I know you said you used to deal with their nutrition and try to help them clean up their diet. But more recently, you've been even a little more aggressive. And, you know, so the, the question is, in your, in your practice, how does nutrition affect some of these issues? Uh, and, and the one I'm most interested in actually is the anxiety disorders. Um, but Yeah, sure. So, you know, we all understand, especially your listeners, um, that what we eat and drink, either positively or negatively, impacts, you know, our physical health. Well, the same principle applies to psychological health. What we consume may have beneficial effects, such as um, improved mental clarity, stabilized or elevated mood, improved cognition, or conversely, what we ingest may cause, you know, detrimental effects. So we could become agitated, depressed, nervous, kind of experience that brain fog feeling, and I guess um, more specifically, I, in terms of anxiety disorders, I guess the examples would be, so uh, let's take a child who doesn't have a psychological condition. Let's just start there. So on a school day, the child wakes up and for breakfast, we'll have waffles and syrup and kind of wash it down with OJ. And then at school, starts ex- exhibiting inattentiveness, irritability, brain fog, just just real problems focusing and um, kind of processing information. So, you know, that's a real clear-cut example how that sort of high-carb diet, which you discussed, you know, in your realm, you know, has that detrimental psychological or mental impact on the child. Then in terms of psychological conditions, you'll have, let's say, um, a patient of mine, a man with OCD, will start his morning at Starbucks and eating that fat-free muffin and washing it down with black coffee, frappuccino, or some some other highly caffeinated, high-sugar drink, and then later magically experiencing experiences like a deluge of OCD type of an intrusive thoughts. And then lastly, we might have a woman who has panic disorder so she goes to Whole Foods for lunch and thinks she's doing something good for herself and has that smoothie with a plethora of fruit, you know, juices and the agave and a spirulina and whatever else that sounds like a, some type of uh, concoction or lawn vegetable or something. And then, you know, a little later starts experiencing nervousness and or even a full-blown panic attack. So point being is that just like in physical health, um, what we are consuming in, ter- in terms of foods and beverages and whatnot really does affect um, psychological symptoms. And sometimes, you know, it's just interesting because I guess in we, we all understand what the kid after Halloween looks like, you know, jumping off the walls and irritable or crashing. But in terms of psychological conditions, I don't think it's being discussed too much. And I see that in terms of especially patients who have seen psychiatrists. I mean, psychiatrists, not all of them, but majority will mention, you know, kind of endogenous things like family history of of psychological disease or exogenous things such as how's your marriage or how's your job and, you know, those type of stressors. But I've never heard of a psychiatrist that has said, well, let's do a food log. 
Well, yeah. You know what I mean? So to me, it just makes sense. Yeah, people, it, it's very interesting that people still try to separate mind and body so much. You know, I think Descartes did us a big disservice, actually, when uh, he, he said, you know, I think, therefore I am trying to separate this idea of mind and body. And they're intimately related. And cognitive science is telling us, basically in a backwards manner from what we think, all of our ability to be logical and to think critically and to be analytic actually comes from the body itself and our ability to move and move effectively. And that feedback mechanism in the nervous system is what allows our brain to be more logical. Um, And then so the emotional components to us and our like societal components and our ability to be empathetic, that comes from the brain. And it should just make complete sense that your diet is going to be the biggest driving factor in every aspect of your health, whether it's mental or physical. And then on top of that, um, we've got to put all the research into perspective too, because I think part of that separation that diet can't be as important is that we knew about things like the blood-brain barrier. So it's like, okay, some things don't cross that, therefore diet may not have as big of an impact. Uh, But the more we learn, the more we learn how important that impact is. And the things that can cross are the ones that can cause the biggest aberrations like glucose and insulin. Uh, So so to like ignore the connection between diet and mental health is very, very short-sighted, to say the least. I think also, as you probably know, Regine, when we talk about anxiety disorders and OCD, these tend to be really difficult disorders to manage with medicine. Uh, They tend to be very treatment-resistant as well, so I think it's important that we look at these other aspects that you're looking at to help the patients uh, improve their mood and decrease their... uh, inability or their difficulties with their activities of daily living because these are can be very debilitating disorders absolutely i mean uh you know so the people who walk through my door you know there's a spectrum of people who are highly functioning and are kind of um you know just annoyed or you know slightly impaired in functioning due to ocd or panic disorder and then other people the impairment is just is just hor- horrific, and they, they can't function, and they're not going to work, and they can't sustain relationships, and, you know, not to the point, obviously, of hospitalization. I mean, if that needs to happen, you know, you know that then I'll refer somebody, and but, you know, people, you know, so there's just varying degrees, and it can be very incapacitating, these type of disorders. So how have you started to incorporate diet then more into your treatment uh, protocols and goals? Yeah, so in treating um, people with anxiety disorders, I use nutrition as one component in a comprehensive uh, treatment plan. So that plan would include cognitive behavior therapy, nutrition, and then in some cases, when warranted, psychotropic medication. And, you know, although nutrition is not a panacea for anxiety disorders, it can significantly impact symptoms. Either, like we were saying before, it can detrimentally in, in the fact that it can trigger or exacerbate a symptom or using nutrition appropriately, it can have, you know, the beneficial um, effects of decreasing the severity of the symptom or even the frequency of the symptoms. So 
the other point in, in, in which, um, or the reason why I use nutrition as part of my treatment plan is kind of in your realm, Kiefer, because lots of times patients who go on medication, these psychotropic medications, and they're antidepressants, and they're called SSRIs, little psychobabble. But what happens is these SSRI antidepressants have a nasty side effect of weight gain. And the irony is I can have a person walk through my door with OCD and not necessarily depressed, okay? So they're not, you know, they have OCD, they're functioning, and maybe the OCD is annoying or bothersome, but not really depressed. So then there'll be a decision to go on medication, not necessarily my decision. Well, it's really never is my decision, but, you know, it's something they want to explore, and, you know, I support that when needed. And so they'll go on the antidepressant meds, and then a few weeks later start gaining weight, and then they become depressed. So that's pretty ironic that somebody will go on an antidepressant, gain weight, and then become depressed. So that was a, yeah, I mean, so that was another reason why, you know, we really have to look at nutrition as part of the treatment plan in yeah, those it's, cases. It sounds like a pretty, pretty nasty feedback loop. You're taking the medication to avoid one problem, but then a new problem arises that then causes another psychological problem to come up. And you know, we, we know about a lot of these drugs for weight gain and that the aberrations that causes in a lot of the central axes to control body weight. Uh, some of the connections aren't clear why that happens, but you know, it's very common as you see. And you know, I, I don't know how often that conversation comes up after that or during that. It's like, well, why don't we look at your diet? You know, why don't we change some things to try to prevent these side effects? Do you ever hear that conversation and, you know, any conferences that you go to or any discussions you have with peers? Does that conversation ever come up? It will, well, it obviously comes up with the patient and because there is a lot of distress. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I also do collaborate with psychiatrists. I like to have that relationship. I think it's important. And I, I have the privilege of working with, and when I say working independent of me, but, you know, working with psychiatrists. And, you know, and they're open to hearing about the depression due to weight gain, but, on other, in, but also in the hierarchy of issues, it kind of falls at the bottom, in, you know, for lots of these psychiatrists. It's like, look, the person had, you know, pretty moderate to severe panic or OCD, and we put them on an SSRI, so let's talk in terms of um, brand names like Prozac or Zoloft or what have you, and there's been some efficacy. So that means reduction in symptoms. So we're all happy. And now the patient's complaining of weight gain. You know, what do you want me to do? So it's like this conundrum that, you know, do I, I'm doing, you know, I'm having gains from being on, I don't, okay, uh-huh. gains. <laughs> I'm having weight gain from being on the antidepressant, a double, double ward, weight gain from being on the antidepressant, but I may, I'm having beneficial results um, in terms of taking the antidepressant in terms of the symptomatology. And so they, there was this bind there, this conundrum, what should I do? And then I said, well, hello, let's look at nutrition. So I do discuss that with psychiatrists, but they kind of, I mean, they're open to what I say, but I don't think they really consider it to be a big factor. And I think, again, in light of progress made between the OCD or the panic disorder, they're just like, okay, regime, so handle so, it. <laughs> but yeah, you know what I mean? do you know what I mean? 
I don't think they're insensitive to it, but I just think, come on. You know, we, 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 we fought the dragon, we tamed the beast, so come right. on, so deal with it. Don't you think and this is kind of like ass it, it, backwards? It's a big deal. I mean, if they go in to see the psychiatrist and the first thought was, especially with anxiety disorders, because uh, we do know there's strong connections between diet and anxiety disorders, you know, doesn't that just seem ass backwards? Shouldn't the first line of treatment be, okay, let's try to clean up your diet. Let's make these changes and see what happens and then see if we need drugs for adjunctive therapy. You know, because I could see if you went in and you were crippled by anxiety attacks. At that point, you know, you need to be functional during the day. Right, I understand right. starting with medication uh, to try to have a normal life at that point. But uh, in those situations where it's not that common or it's just annoying, it, it seems like that should be the default treatment. Uh, let, let's tackle the diet aspect. Let's look at that. Let's, you know, just make a couple weeks worth of changes. Even a week worth of change usually brings dramatic results. And that's because the way in insulin can interfere with um, adrenaline release, cortisol release, give hyper responses when, or, when it's inappropriate. Uh, so if, if we could control that, you know, all of their sim symptoms might just disappear. And then we never even have to look at medication. So are you frustrated by that? That, you know, at least from a psychiatrist's point of view, they're just going to go straight for medication before anything else and then just kind of hand-wavingly tell you to deal with it? Well, you know, I can, I'll answer that in, um, with several points. And number one, you know, uh, again, I have, and I really mean this, I, I have the utmost respect for doctors. My father's a doctor. He's a cardiologist. My brother's an oncologist. And I also respect medication because when needed, as you said, when needed, it can change lives. Right. So that's great. But let's look at psychiatrists. I mean, they're not going to medical school to push right, nutrition. Right. Right. I mean, that's what they do. They, they give out medication. So, I mean, that's that's what their job is. So and I think they care about their patients, hopefully, and they want them to feel better. So there's a pill for that. And so when somebody calls me and inquires about my services, and the first thing I ask is, you know, are you on medication? If they say no, do you think oh, I need right. to be? I say no. <laughs> Walk in my door without meds. You know, are you functioning? That's the first thing. You know, if you're functioning, no, I go, yes, I go to school or I go to work or, you know, what have you. Fine, you're functioning. Come see me. Let's talk about behavioral therapy because that's really the first line of defense. When somebody has OCD and is functioning, and, you know, and, and when I say functioning, again, occupationally, activities of daily living, socially, academically, if you walk through my door, we're going to start with behavior therapy. Then, of course, as part of that regimen, we're going to look at your nutrition, and then we'll determine how, in, in terms of how you're doing with, with managing symptoms, then we're going to talk about the need for medication if warranted. So in terms of, to answer your question, I mean, I don't, well, I don't know if I, I don't blame psychiatrists. I think that's how they're trained. I just don't think nutrition is, you know, even on their minds, really. I think it comes back to whether it's a psychiatrist or a healthcare provider, if you have a nail, they have the hammer kind of process, right? I mean, that's what we have in our toolbox. Well, we have medication, to, and that's why patients come to see us, but I think to that fact, if you have these patients who have mild symptoms that are not grossly impaired, you know, the last thing they do, they want to go on is a med. I mean, that's the thing that I get from my patients is they, I, I do get 
pushback if that's a suggestion that's made. And sometimes it does make benefit to either have them come back and work on, on certain things in their lifestyle or see a, a therapist to work on things that they're going on in their life before they go on medication. And I think that's completely reasonable. And, you know, in the term, excuse me, in this, and one last thought, I mean, now let's look at it in terms of what's going on in the media or what's going on on television. I turn on my television and I'm watching whatever, and all of a sudden there's, you know, we're talking about Viagra, we're talking about Zoloft, we're talking about go talk, talk to your doctor about, you know, fill in the blank. So what happens is, too, is people go, you know, go to these, um, psychiatrists, and they're really seeking out medication. And I'm not saying in a pathological way or because they're drug addicts. I'm saying because, you know, isn't it easier to pop a pill than to change our nutritional habits? Isn't it easier to pop a pill than do behavioral therapy? And the answer is yes. But you know what? On the other hand, you really want to be ingesting this medication with the nasty side effects, and God knows what's going to happen. That's short term. So, you know, the sexual side effects, the weight gain, the, you know, all these other plethora of side effects, you know, the, the antidepressant may make you suicidal. Nice. You know, like, you know, right. So it's easier to pop the pill than it is to, you know, make some changes. And I don't know what that, what that is. I mean, I can call it human nature. I can call it, um, you know, I can call it life in the United States. I mean, I don't know, but. Well, yeah, you've it's got disturbing. a you got a couple competing factors there. I I you know almost minored in psychology, and I just remember the theme coming up over and over again that usually when it comes to major changes in an individual's life, they're going to keep doing what they're doing unless the change is easier than their current path. And you know, popping a pill is pretty easy, and if it ablates your symptoms that are causing problems. Yeah, that's that's easier than what you were doing before, which was nothing. Uh, having major dietary interventions and changing your lifestyle, that's pretty big and pretty difficult. And that may be too much for most people. And then compound that on top of the United States is the only country in the world where ph- pharmaceutical companies can advertise directly to consumers. So you have consumers who already have this mindset just general human mindset that, okay, I want whatever changes I need to make, they need to be easier than what I'm doing now. And there's all this advertisements of, oh, take this little pill and you're going to feel better. So of course you're going to go in and ask about this pill to make you feel better. And you probably don't even hear the warnings. And one of my favorite, uh, you know, I can't remember. It's always such a pleasing voice that goes over, you know, and the all these side effects, and I remember, I can't remember the medication, but towards the end of the list, it said, and in some rare instances, it may cause death. Um, you know, it, and it's like, um, it's like, oh my yeah. gosh, aren't you listening to any of this? Um, I remember one of them masked death as non-recoverable heart failure. It's like, uh, seriously? And people aren't going to pay attention to that. They're not going to hear non-recoverable heart failure. What's what's that? That that doesn't sound that bad. You know, they just they want the pill. They think it's going to make him feel better, right? My dad's convinced he's got restless leg syndrome. He doesn't even know what that is, but he saw medication for it, so he went in and asked. And, you know, he's he's on medication for restless leg syndrome. And he doesn't even know what it is. I'm like, well, well, what made you think you had that? Well, you know, I don't know. Sometimes my feet go numb if I sit the wrong way. That's not restless leg syndrome. That's 
kind of normal. You're cut off circulation. And, and in, ter- in, in, in terms of what you were saying, um, as far as the path of re- least resistance, and, you know, that's what we humans like, the path of least resistance and least effort. You know, I must say, too, is in terms of um, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which, what I do in, in combating these, these disorders, it's a little different little different than seeing a typical therapist in that when one has a fear, so let's say a specific phobia, let's say I was bitten by a dog, and that's legitimate that I'd be afraid of dogs, but hey, I have dogs or there are dogs in the world and I want to overcome my fear, we don't avoid the dog. So we have to actually be put in a situation, although there's a methodology to it and it's well-planned, we have the person actually face the fear. And that's, and no pun intended, that's damn right scary. So it's not, it's a lot of work. You know, in, in combating anxiety disorders, there's a lot of work. So, I mean, I, I mean, you experience that, Kiefer, I guess, in working with your high-performance clients or, you know, in weight training or, you know, anybody who wants to make physical changes. I mean, you can give them a nutrition plan. You can give them an exercise plan or try to get them from exercising, you know, hours in the gym and all that good stuff. But, you know, you know, making a person, you know, change a behavior is really difficult unless they're really motivated. Actually, well, yeah, think we about need to, that in- so for high performance athletes, that's actually super simple. They will do whatever you tell them if you can promise them better results. So that's, that's that, yeah, they're really motivated. Yeah, so let's take the typical, more, I just want to look good in my bathing suit. Right. More that, or even just somebody who wants to drop 50 pounds. I mean, those are the people that are very difficult to work with. So go ahead. Right. And so, but consider, so as far as those type of people who are, you know, typical people, um, you know, find it difficult to make changes, think of somebody going up against their worst right. fears. So I give my patients so much credit. I mean, I'm a coach. They're the star. We have a very collaborative relationship. And really, I just have the utmost respect for all of them. And I work with um, children starting as early as age uh, eight, all the way up into adulthood, and they're just the best. And I give them a lot of credit because back to what we were saying, it's just much easier to take a pill and not do the work. Now, granted, some some of, some of these patients are on medications because they really need it. And lots of them are trying to get off their medications by doing behavior therapy and, and um, taking a look at nutrition. So, but uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. We live in a society where it's pop a pill and that's it. You know, everything becomes golden right. and beautiful and rainbows. And Well, I think, you know, popping the pill, the problem with that and the, issues you have with response is that the effect of the drug is so heterogeneous in the population. You know, these drugs are hitting multiple receptors. There's no dipstick to know which receptor needs to be hit. And that's the other issue here. So uh, I think most providers, when we look at providing medication, we don't have that ability to test for those things. So all we do have is to kind of throw, you know, stuff on the wall and see what sticks. Absolutely. you know, but there are tools that are not really well known that can really kind of pin some of this stuff down and target the medications more appropriately. Although most providers tend to use more of a gestalt approach, so I think that's the thing. That's the thing with medication; it can be used appropriately, uh, but that difficulty is trying to find the appropriate medication for that patient, and that's really the black hole. Right, it's really challenging because you know they all feel like you know for the most part they feel like guinea pigs. Now, if there's a family history 
of depression or OCD or panic disorder, which is kind of falls into the same realm with these realm, I guess, of the neurotransmitters, then we can say, well, your dad's on Zoloft. He had great results. Let's, you know, put you on Zoloft. Okay, so we'll start there. But I think in general, there's this classes of these antidepressants, and the ones that have shown the most efficacy are like are the SSRIs. So for the audience, you all would know our listeners: Prozac, Luvox, Paxil, and then there's you know, there's other type of antidepressants. So there's atypical antidepressants or tricyclic antidepressants. So again, we'll start, you know, if we, you know, if, if somebody's walking in with no family history or um, no medication history, we'll just start with the SSRIs and then work our way through the list until we find the right medicine at the right dose. And, you know, it's, it's really frustrating. And then we have all the symptoms, the adverse symptoms that we discussed, like the sexual side effects and the weight gain and the dry mouth and the sweating and all that, but we still really haven't found something that's, you know, helping the OCD or the panic disorder. So it it is very frustrating, um, and that's unfortunate. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, like you were saying, Rocky, I would love to know uh, better ways of testing to see, you know, exactly what neurotransmitters are being are having issues within one's brain that are causing the disorder because it's just hit or miss. So the n- and and it takes a long time for these medications to show start showing any efficacy anyway. So we're talking about this this is not aspirin. You take an aspirin and what, ten minutes later, twenty minutes later you're feeling you know, the headache's gone. These medications take a long time. It could be eight weeks, 10 weeks, or 12 weeks to sh- start showing any efficacy in, in the treatment of the symptoms. So there's a lot of time, effort, kind of blood, sweat, and tears involved in taking you know these types of medications. I think that the other issue is the normal testing that most providers use to determine if a patient has anxiety or depression. Uh, they are usually a yes or no questionnaire. And so there is actually some inventory questionnaires you can use uh, that can actually target uh, taking their symptoms and targeting the neurotransmitter dysfunction. So we use one of these. It was developed by a, a psychiatrist at UCLA. I've been using this one in my practice for about 10 years and actually will look at patients who are either having a demodulated symptom, so that would be a deficiency in serotonin, versus a deactivated symptom, which would be a deficiency in either norepinephrine dopamine. So then we can actually mm-hmm. use the questionnaire. Mm-hmm. It actually will tell us, based on the patient's response, where the deficiency is at, and then you can actually tailor drug therapy um, if the patient you know needs it or desires to go on drug therapy for that patient. We actually pulled data, I think, about two years ago, and I think our remission rate was somewhere around 70% at four to six weeks, which is kind of unheard of. <laughs> so wow. we can usually... So, I would love. Yeah, to I'll give you. That. I'll give you the the questionnaire available now as an app on your iPad. So we actually just hand the patients the iPad and they do the questionnaire. It's like nineteen questions. It takes like five minutes. Uh, so we use that as a tool for our patients to fill out. And then what you can do then is use the same tool on the follow up visit to monitor response. So you can see if the drug you gave them for that neurotransmitter deficit is responding to their symptoms and put that in the gestalt with your interview. So. Wow, that would just help so much. I mean, in just narrowing it down, because like I said, it's kind of hit or miss over here. And uh, wow. And so even with the self-report, it's pretty accurate. Yeah, definitely. Um, If we have patients who we feel, or if I feel they're not really giving an honest uh, answer to the questions, we'll usually also give a family member the inventory as well. So if, you know, a wife comes with a husband or 
that type of thing. Or a parent comes in with a, a teenager, we'll have them both do the questionnaire for the individual, and we usually will see if it's congruent or discongruent. Well, that would be very helpful. Yeah, it's amazing some of the tools and things that are out there that just aren't widely known about. I couldn't imagine prescribing psychotropic medications without the tool. It's amazing how accurate it is and how well it works. And it's just not very well known. Obviously, it doesn't have as many validation papers in literature as the MADRAS score or the PHQ-9 or some of these other ones that most providers use. But there are a couple of published papers that this professor has actually put out, and he's presented at the uh, APA several times, uh, the American Psychiatric Association. So. It, there is some validation with the tool, and like I said, I've been using it for 10 years, and I find it invaluable. So we usually administer this with some type of mood disorder questionnaire just to make sure we screen them for bipolar disorder as well, and then go from there. Yeah, that, that instrument would be so helpful, and I would share that with some of the psychiatrists I work with because I think, yeah, it just could save a lot of time, effort, and emotional issues you know, associated so with from that. An- trying to find the right medication. So from an intrusional standpoint, do you work with your psychiatrists or providers in terms of testing for certain uh, deficiencies? Uh, we know, you know, you can test for like omega fatty acid levels and you can check for certain genetic mutations like MTHFR. Uh, have you, do they often do those type of testing with, for their patients? Not that I have come across. Like I said, the whole nutrition uh, the issue of nutrition really does not come up in terms of psychiatrists. Now, you know, it comes up in terms of, you know, the common allergies. Like, you know, when I'm doing, you know, an intake and I want to, you know, and part of the intake is, uh, you know, any known allergies and or drug interaction, you know, a- or allergies for drug interactions or what have you, that's where it comes up. But, yeah, it's just so unsophisticated when it comes to nutrition. And, and, I'm, and I'm talking more conventional psychiatry here. You know, I don't know what, you know, I'm not saying that everybody, every psychiatrist is um, kind of leaving it out of their practice, but I haven't seen so it. So I know one of the things. And I work with, psych- and I work with psychiatrists who specialize more or less in, in um, OCD and panic disorder. So the, yeah, these patients, like I said, are much more difficult to treat. And I think that one of the things that at least I find in my practice is I routinely screen for omega-3 fatty acid levels. Every single depressed patient, every single patient has bipolar disorder, every patient who's got OCD or panic disorder, their omega-3 index is always low. So when it comes to diet, uh, we always rec- I, use, I always recommend making sure they're supplementing with either omega-3 fatty acids or they're eating at least a pound of fish, oily fish a week uh, in combination with their supplementation. The other thing we also always, I always check on patients who are going to think about going on medication or having issues is we check for that genetic mutation, MTHFR. As you might know, that is a a gene that controls a protein that helps uh, metabolize um, methionine and homocysteine. And obviously methionine is one of these precursors for, for serotonin and for the neurotransmitters in the brain. So if you carry this genetic mutation, which about 60% of us do, um, you can simply just supplement with methylated folic acid. Uh, and correct that issue if there is an issue. And I've seen actually cases where if we check for families uh, and there's a genetic mutation, a lot of times just changing the diet and actually putting them on some methylated folic acid can make a significant reduction in their symptoms. Right. And in answering your question, Rocky, I, um, I maybe I misheard you, but I thought the question was, do psychiatrists use type, some types of testing to, to see where there's deficiencies and let's say, 
you know, serotonin or omega-3 or what have you? And the answer was no. Now, in my practice, I do use, I do monitor um, diet and food and beverages, and I have them, I, what, I, what I do with my patients, I log a lot of things because I'm a behavior therapist. So I log symptom, I have them log symptomatology of panic or OCD over the course of the week, and I usually see somebody once a week, so between sessions. And then I also send them home with a food log, food and beverage log. And then we start looking at, you know, from what we're seeing, you know, the incidence of um, the symptomatology or maybe, you know, or or what they're ingesting in terms of alcohol, those type of, you know, uh, things with drug effects. And then, you know, where, where it comes in in accordance to their symptomatology for the week. And then we start tweaking things. So I definitely have them log their food. And then the recommendations I make, there are, there are a couple steps. I think the first step would be eliminating or reducing any anxiety-provoking substance. So the caffeine, sugar, nicotine are kind of no-brainers. Um, trying to eliminate or at least decrease the alcohol and also be really aware of like OTC stimulant medications. And then the next step would be looking at their diet in terms of the macros. And because, you know, some people are just all across the board off when it comes to the macros. They're, they're doing the typical uh, low-fat, high-carb, low-protein type of diet, or some of them are juicing, and some of them are doing, the, I guess, that 5-2 intermittent fasting type of thing. So we definitely have to take, like, a more general look at the macros. And then, then we'd introduce more beneficial foods, so, like, foods high in folic acid, foods rich in omega-3s. Um, lots of my people do not drink enough water. They drink, you know, a lot of diet soda and kind of energy drinks, but they're not drinking water, so I, they're pretty dehydrated. And then I do use or recommend um, them use nutritional supplements such as magnesium, vitamin D3. Um, if they don't eat oily fishes, I will have them supplement with omega-3s. I know, Kiefer, you, for your folks, you recommend five milligrams, I think, three times a day. I think it's like five, five grams. Three times a day? Yeah. I'm sorry, did I say milligrams? Yeah. Five grams three times a day. Um, you know, usually I'll start off, some of the, the dosage is like, I think, 1.3 or something a couple days, a few times a day. Mm -hmm. And then there are very specific uh, supplements for people suffering from OCD or trichotillomania, which is hair pulling, such as inositol or NAC, which is um, an acetylcysteine that's shown um, to be very beneficial in reducing symptoms. So I, you know... Not that I have to agree with you, Rocky, but obviously agree with you that we really have to look at, you know, all these types of things. And I do implement um, nutrition as far as of the treatment plan as, you know, like I said, as an adjunct to the behavior therapy. But unfortunately, psychiatrists, like I said, just aren't really talking about it very much. Well, what about your patients when you start talking about diet with them and these changes that they can make and some of the simple supplementation? Do they, in those initial conversations, do they have any sort of recognition that diet could play a large role in their their treatment or even possibly in having the disorder in the first place? Do they, do they comprehend that at all or have they thought about it? Well, I think that there's this spectrum of awareness or insight. So on one end of the spectrum, we have people who don't, have put any consideration into how their diet affects 
their mental health or their specific psychological condition. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have people who feel they're insightful and do consider the dietary effects on their OCD or panic disorder. But unfortunately, they're using diets that seem to cause like more problems than benefits. And that's what I was referring to with you know, the juicing or the 5-2 diet or that low-fat kind of diet. And then we have in the middle of the spectrum people who really don't give much attention to the food and beverages that they're ingesting, but they're taking supplements such as, um, let's say, St. John's Ward or Sami or, you know, ashwagandha or what have you. And again, they'll take these supplements, but they won't change their diet. And I think, Rocky, you've said before, you can't out-train a bad diet. Well, you can't, you know, out-supplement a bad diet either. So again, it's just interesting to me that they're not worried about, you know, the amount of sugar they're intaking, but we're just going to swallow some St. John's water, what have you. And, you know, the problem with these natural supplements, although, you know, I just refer to some supplements that are very helpful, but some of these other supplements can either be entirely ineffective, so it's just a waste of money, or they can be very dangerous, um, especially when taken with other medications. So the two issues I have with people just using supplements without looking at their diet would be, you know, again, supplements can't fix a bad diet. And, you know, natural doesn't mean safe and that you really need to talk to your doctor when you, before you start ingesting these antidepressants or anti-anxiety type of supplements and, um, you know, in really, you know, you know, make sure that you're aware of the fact that there could be really bad side effects. Wait, are you trying to tell me that just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe? It's like the entire foundation yeah, of certain yeah. dietary movements out there. That's, that's ridiculous. I know, I know. I'm going out on a limb. I am. I guess snake venom is natural, but I wouldn't want to, you know, be getting bitten, be bitten by a snake either. And, you know, there's a lot. I think carbon monoxide is, is natural. Yeah, but there, there's all kinds yeah, of... don't want to be stuck in a garage with that stuff blowing around, so... Yeah. yeah. Cocaine. So to heroin. answer your question, I mean, you know, things fall out, you know, all over the place in terms of awareness and insight from like no consideration to people who do consider it, who are just, you know, unfortunately, they're just kind of misled by the diet du jour. And like, you know, and I always know what doctor on TV is is kind of pushing what supplement or which diet at the time, because then, you know, my patients are running into me saying, oh, I'm going to try this diet, or what do you think about this pill? I'm like, okay, I know what's going on in Women's World Magazine this week, because, you know, Women's World Magazine every week has a new diet and a new, you know, way to lose weight by just popping a pill. Carb Night was actually a feature in Women's World one week. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was. Really? Hey, and it actually works. So I don't know if that was, I guess that was the uh, atypical diet in there. So Regine, you know, what's your approach with these patients? Because they're already having difficulty managing anxiety, depression, OCD. So it's difficult enough to um, make your recommendations for treatment, let alone try to work on some dietary changes. So what's your first step? How do you approach it with them? Well, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. And you know, it, 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 it's difficult. It's like one more step in this, um, in, in the therapy. But, you know, I think it comes down to trust. And that's the biggest component because once one sees 
that I'm knowledgeable about OCD and the strategies that they're employing is helping or helping them with their OCD or let's say their panic disorder, then they then what I say become has maybe holds more weight than you know just somebody just making a recommendation. So the trust is there. I would say that I usually don't get any resistance, but there's there is some reluctance, especially from children. I mean, obviously, kids want to eat with their peers are eating, and, you know, 80% of that stuff is processed. So, you know, I really have to get the parents involved and try to, you know, gently motivate the child to make better choices in, in you know, what they're consuming and to avoid certain things. So that's where I get the reluctancy. Um, with the adults, I think most are open, but there is skepticism when I mention increasing dietary fat intake because we all know that butter is the devil and there's this you know when I, when they start having this like kind of fear of fat um dietary fat I should say the fear of consuming dietary fat you know what I say I just remind them that we may be uncertain or they may be uncertain that consuming fat is going to be good for them but we absolutely know that taking antidepressant medications have resulted in weight gain and sexual side effects. So, you know, we might have to take the leap of faith with the butter or the avocado or the coconut oil or what have you, but, you know, it's better than doing this than having to go on antidepressants or continuing to have to take these things, you know, if we can make some tweaks. So I think overall people are pretty open, you know, to making the changes. I mean, and I don't know if either of you have ever had a panic attack, but the absolute worst experience ever and, you know, after experience one panic attack, let us let alone like uh, several panic attacks, you're about ready to sell your firstborn because it's anything you can do to stop that from happening. Have, you, have, have either of you ever experienced a panic attack? I actually, I think I did once, but since it's a one, one case, I'm not sure if that's what it was, but it had all the uh, symptomology. So, yeah. So for those of you who fortunately have never had one of these things they what they are is panic attacks kind of strike without warning and and there there are two features one is a physical features or symptoms which could be difficulty breathing or rapid heartbeat sweating dizziness just intense feelings of dread on the psychological and just like like fear and nervousness that your world's about to end so it's very unpleasant it's very debilitating and uh, it's it's just a very you know it's very stressful and bad and 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 people who have one panic attack often are aligned to having more than one. So the point is is that after having a panic attack, people are open to anything that can make those things go away. So those folks are really you know panic attack and OCD folk are really looking to try to reduce symptomatology. Um, I'm not saying that again that there's a cure for either of these either of these disorders, but I think that makes them more open to listening to what I have. So to what say. is your, what is the dietary recommendation? It sounds like you're recommending more fat, but I assume you're making other recommendations in conjunction with that, like maybe something like carb night or yes. I'm just going out on a limb on that one. Right. So, so I'm sorry. What'd you say? The I, I said, the I'm just going out on a limb on that one that you might be recommending carb night. Well, yes, you're going out on a limb. If you're a gambling man, you'd probably win the bet. So, sure. Um, 
Well, what happened, let me just go back. So I've been in practice for 15 years. So I've been interested in nutrition for the reasons we discussed about, you know, because obviously it's vital to, um, to helping um, combat some of these, these conditions, these psychological disorders. But, you know, I'm only as good as what the information is out there. And so are my patients. So back in the day, 15 years ago, when I'm looking into nutrition for myself and for, for others, you know, it's, it's all the food pyramid, okay? So it's high carbs, and then, you know, you work your way up and just a little bit of fat because it's evil, and, you know, it's a little bit of, of flesh, and, you know, that's the way we're supposed to live our lives, and we tried that for a while, and you know what? It didn't work out too well. Now, when you and Dr. Patel um, were having conversations, conversations on previous podcasts, I think you talked about, you know, folks who change their diet they, and, and they, they consume, uh, maybe they do consume more carbohydrate, carbohydrates or a little bit more, um, a little bit more protein in terms of the guy who I guess ate McDonald's. I think I remember that on one of the podcasts and his diet is like his, there was some physio, physiological improvement. And then I think your argument, Kiefer, was, well, we didn't know how crappy his diet was before. Right. Something like that. Well, I think, you know, right, right. And so, I don't know, hopefully the listeners know the podcast to which I'm referring. But anyway, you know, so back in the day when I started, up, started you know, pushing the food pyramid, I mean, again, there was improvement, but was that because everybody's diet was so crappy to begin with? I mean, we're all consuming you know, diet Cokes and Cokes and all this other stuff. Any, I guess cleaning up the diet at that point was still beneficial. But now, you know, fast forward 15 years and the food pyramid is not working very well in terms of psychological benefits or in terms of physiological benefits. Uh, you know, then I'm looking into, you know, a carb night type of diet, which, you know, is high fat, moderate protein and low carb. and gosh, you know, what great results are we achieving with this? And again, you know, my patients are open to it. I mean, it's been, it's been on my mind since reading the book and I did read the book. I didn't just buy it. And yeah, I think people are open to, you know, it's, but we have to make small changes because as Dr. Patel and you were saying, you know, there's a lot of behavior modifications going on with, with my patients and I don't want to overwhelm them and I also kind of want them to see how both variables of like in, in terms of the behavior therapy with the psychological symptoms and behavior therapy with the food and nutrition. I want to see how see how they go hand in hand for that specific individual. But yeah, in the last gosh, I think I've I've read your book a couple months ago. You know, I really started pushing, especially in starting with the macronutrient of increasing fat. Increasing fat. That has been my, that's what I'm on, you know, that's been my call to arms, increasing fat. And like I said, I, we try. We try that. So, and, and again, well, you know, when I'm talking about increasing fat, I hear, yeah, I'll try eating more avocado and yeah, coconut oil would sound good, but I don't know yeah, about the butter. And then they look at me and they go, but I want to look just like you and, and you all don't know what I look like, but. I'm pretty low body fat and I work out and do you want to look like me? Come see my refrigerator over right. here and, you know, do a little tour and open up my, all, no, literally butter in my refrigerator, butter and, and, you know, the cheeseburger I ate without the bun. And I mean, you know, yeah. they just look at me like, yeah, I must be some exotic creature. And I'm like, no. So 
the ones the ones who are making these changes, you know, do you have any who have gone like full into it? They're you know, they they believe you, they're on board and they've gone full into it. Have you had anybody who's taken that leap of faith yet or are you still making some baby steps in that direction? Well, full into it, let's just say, like, okay, so back to carbonite solution, carbonite solution. So, you know, obviously it's a ketogenic diet, and then what you, and then after being in a period of um, ketosis, then one would, would then spike insulin by ingesting carbs or what have you. So it's not a typical ketogenic diet. So, you know, my concern was, because I'm not that knowledgeable about this, um, what would happen to one who was taking... Uh, these serotonin-boosting agents and then spiking serotonin by ingesting carbohydrates, especially high glycemic carbs, so getting that really fast boost over a period of six hours. So you and I, Kiefer, talked about that offline because, you know what, if I called up a psychiatrist, I don't think they would really understand what the hell I was trying to do, to be honest with you. I mean, I think I need to buy books for all the psychiatrists first or at least get them to buy your ebook pass it around, have them read it. Maybe I should pay them to read it. And, you know, and then we can have a conversation because I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't know it all, you know, that I don't, and I need help. So you were generous enough, Kiefer, to answer my question about, you know, how would one implement carb night solution, you know, if taking, you know, these antidepressants. So to answer your question, I haven't yet gone full blown. I still feel like I need to have conversations with, at least with my patients on medication. With my patients who aren't taking meds, then, I, yes, I have talked about carbonite and I've talked about, you know, high glycemic carbs and why they, they need to, like, break the ketogenic state with the high glycemic carbs. And they're interested. I mean, um, there's two people who I think are the most on board with it. But as far as, like, the 100% compliancy, I haven't seen that yet. I think, you know... I don't want to give them this message because one message is avoid sugar, you know, avoid caffeine, you know, avoid, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the other hand regime saying, guess what? On one night, I want sugar. And you know what? And when I mean sugar, oh, you mean oatmeal? That doesn't do what we need you to do. No, carbs. We like carbs. High glycemic carbs. You mean brown rice? No, white rice. You know, it's like regime. What the hell? You know, again, it sounds so conflicting. But there's, but we have to look specifically at what we're working on here, right? I mean, Kiefer, I don't think you go around saying to the whole general population, let's go consuming high glide carbs all day long. I mean, that's not your point. Your point is, is that you have a book and scientific and there's a methodology to it. Okay. So what I try to explain to patients, like first I'm saying, stay away from sugars, especially high glide sugars, because it will spike, you know, and they will exacerbate or invite panic or whatever. And now I'm saying, yes, once a week, do it. So I think, again, we got to work our way through the behavior therapy. They feel they need to feel like they can manage their symptomatology through through the strategies that we're employing. Um, I think they need to make overall changes to their diet. And then when they become more sophisticated, I mean, I think then we start really introducing your book, you know, full throttle. Because if not, it gets too confusing. Do you understand what I mean? Oh, I just yeah. don't want to give mixed messages. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and that's, you know, not just the messages that you give in your practice. I mean, that's kind of a more of just a general problem that's out there. There's so many mixed messages. Um, you know, the, it, it's hard to reconcile them all. And then, 
you know, sugar's bad, but oh no, wait, sugar's maybe good. You know, just in general, those messages are, they're so contradictory across the board. And it doesn't even have to be if you're comparing it with carbonite. It's, you know, all kinds of different things are so contradictory. You know, one of my favorites is, right, and you know what, it, I think, is like paleo. I'm sorry. Because in paleo, nightshades are poison, avoid all nightshades, but potatoes are the perfect starch source. But everyone forgets to mention that potatoes are nightshades. You know, so it, it's that kind of stuff that's out there. And there's just these, you know, so you get all these mixed messages and then you get confused and then you start to doubt everything. Uh, it, it makes it difficult. Right. Well, you know, I mean, let's, let's just take a step back and say, look, food is a drug. We ingest something and there's a chemical reaction to, in our bodies. Food isn't, good, isn't evil and it's not like the savior, right? So it depends on what we're looking towards. I mean, everybody has specific goals. I mean, there are sub substances that de facto are bad for us. You know what I mean? But other than that, I mean, you know, food is a drug. And that's why some people who, you know, I might be able to ingest gluten and you might not be able to. I know we love the gluten talk. Right. Right. So, you know, everybody's individualistic, but we have to start being mindful of what are we consuming? How is it? What is our bodies telling us? Because we don't listen to our bodies anymore. Boy, you know, maybe eating all those fill in the blank has caused the weight gain or the indigestion or the headaches or, you know, what have you. Or in the psychological realm, maybe it's causing my brain fog or my panic attacks to be, you know, um, full throttle or what have you. So food is a drug. I don't think it's good or evil. But I think there's a way. I mean, this is what I, the brilliance, I think, in your books, whether it be carbonite solution or um, carb backloading is you're using food in a very specific way as a medication to get your body to, you know, have results or reactions to the chemicals that are beneficial. I mean, isn't that quite, I mean, I just think it's brilliant. I mean, I really just think it's just using food appropriately to get desired results, yeah. period. <clears throat> Psychological results, physical results. That should pretty much be a no-brainer for almost... Anybody. I mean, it, it is our most intimate connection to our surroundings. It tells the body what's going on. It tells the body how it should react. It tells the body what to prepare for. Uh, so, you know, that should be the number one focus all the time and using it appropriately. Like you said, you know, you can manipulate these drug-like effects. You know, somebody spent literally like five pages on the internet saying how stupid my opening line of carbacloading was, which is, Carbs are a drug, and by any measure of the definition of a drug, carbohydrates are very specifically a drug because it is a substance that knocks the body far out of homeostasis, and the body then has to do a lot of compensatory work to return. And not only that, I mean, the systemic effect of carbohydrates through its effect on insulin is vast. I mean, it's going to affect almost every tissue in the body. Uh, it can interrupt certain energy pathways. It can accentuate other ones. I mean, th there is no more powerful drug in the world than carbohydrates. There's just really not. And absolutely. And you know what? Everybody's medicating with it. I mean, that's why I walk around. We see the population, the way it looks. I mean, well, I must say, you know, point out another fact. I mean, number one, food is a drug. And people self-medicate. I had a stressful day, day, so I want to see my two best friends, Ben and Jerry, right? Right. Was, you know? I, so, okay, sorry. Um, I was... Joking. But the point is, food is a drug. But I think, you know, also a more global issue is that the public, including myself, we have been duped 
we have been lied to, and we have been misinformed. So, yes, food is a drug, but if we don't know what the hell we're doing with these drugs and we think we're making good choices, I mean, let's not just put the blame on the individual or the public at large. I mean, really, it's kind of criminal because my government, and I'm not anti-government. You know, Hell, I was born in a US naval, on a U.S. naval base. I'm purely American, pro-American, but because, you know, I'm going to get hate mail. You're anti-American. No, I just don't like, you know, propaganda. And here, you know, I think I'm doing a good thing for myself and following the food pyramid. And, you know, because I'm using food as a drug and I am aware that, you know, that food has these positive you know, impacts or negative detrimental um, effects. But if I'm getting bad information, what the hell am I supposed to do? Right. Right. And that's, you know, my attitude has strongly changed over the years because of that. And I think that's why a lot of people like to, you know, stick to these ideas that are supported by the government that, you know, the, the carbohydrate based diet is the you know best diet that there is. And then it's calories in calories out. And then if you, if you subscribe to those arguments, then you get to put the blame on the individual every time. It's like, you don't have the willpower to succeed. You are the one who overate and, and became obese. You are the one who blah, blah, blah. And We've got to look back, you know, at no other time in history did people achieve the massive body fat sizes that they have now. You know, it was such a freakish anomaly. And I've said this before, you had to pay a nickel to see somebody who was over a 40 BMI at the carnival. And now you can just go park your car at Walmart and see herds of them coming in and out of the store. You know, there has to have been something to change on a dietary level to make that happen. It wasn't just all of a sudden started, people started eating massive and massive amounts of food. Something had to allow the body physiologically to accumulate all that extra body fat. And when we think about muscle, we're always like, oh, well, obviously if you want more muscle mass, you have to go to the gym and make that happen. You can't just eat a ton of food and you're going to get more muscle mass. It doesn't work that way. But nobody will apply that argument backwards. Nobody will say, okay, if we really want this massive amount of body fat, we probably have to do something special. What is it that we're doing special to have this massive amount of body fat? And nobody looks at it that way. It's just like, oh, well, you just ate too much. Well, if that argument held, then you should grow just as much muscle mass as body fat, you know, because muscles store energy too. So the bigger your muscles all are, the more energy they could store. So it's just, uh, and your liver actually should probably get bigger as well. It's just, it's, it's a stupid argument to say that people are, you know, have no willpower. And, but it makes it really easy on the downside of it. If you're an expert, it's really be easy to be an expert like Jillian Michaels who just says, well, here's how you lose weight and you beat yourself to death and you eat 100 calories a day and you're going to be fine. Uh, it, it makes it really easy right. because then when the person fails, it's really easy for you to say, well, look, you failed because you couldn't do it. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, it's kind of self-propagating in that way. And in terms of exercise, which, you know, that wasn't the topic of today's conversation. But, oh, my gosh, if one is predisposed to having a, a panic attack or panic disorder, go do a spin class in South Florida. You get in there, I'll set the scene. Lights are low. Speakers are big. We have the main lights are low, the speakers are big, the music is loud, and then we have like these, 
this disco, okay, I'm old, or a club scene of a plethora of these other lights, like flashing lights in there, and you're being yelled at by your instructor, and you're, and you're on your bike, and you're pedaling away like your life depends upon it, and by the way, you had your energy drink pre-workout, and you have your gel in your hand, you know that gel that they ingest? I don't know what that stuff is, I guess, mm-hmm. beer sugar. Man, is that the right perfect storm for a panic attack? I mean, people who are over-exercising, awesome. listen to me. If you do not believe Kiefer, be- listen to me, people. Do not do that. Stress on the body. Stress on the mind. And that it's just not good for anybody. And, you know, how many people who are, like, beating themselves to death in the gym or just come out of there feeling really bitchy? And depleted, and I thought exercise was supposed to be good for you, but I don't know. Right. Uh, we've we've actually run over our time, but I just want to address one issue really fast. We talked about this on the phone, and since you brought up exercise, it's kind of a good segue into it, and that's that this misunderstanding of how the diet and stress levels of a mother can have lasting impacts on their child, and. What I mean by this is they've got some great research now showing very, very strong correlations between, and and almost in animal studies, they've been able to show causation. Um, If a mother's stress load is extremely high to where she can break down the protective enzymes that don't allow cortisol to reach the fetus and the placenta, um, that for the rest of that child's life, they're going to have an anxiety disorder problem. And I think this is incredibly critical in the society, and we're seeing higher incidences of at least low-grade anxiety disorders in children. And we're also seeing this massive increase in exercise and diet-related, especially in women. So they're causing this perfect storm of slightly poor nutrition, uh, lots of exercise, massive amounts of stress hormones, And then, you know, their pregnancy is going to be affected by that and their child will have a long term effect. And the male children from those scenarios can actually pass that on at a genetic level to their kids. So we have this horrible, horrible situation with overstressed females and, you know, these lifelong consequences for their children. And that even relates to diet. You know, if a mother is malnourished in some way, which some women, you know, can, can do that. And I've seen this several times, especially with female runners who are already trying to run to keep their weight under control. Their diet is, is too low in calories. And then they have children that, you know, by the f- age of four or five are, you know, really overweight. And you're like, this just doesn't make sense. Um, but we actually have great correlations that show if the mother is malnourished or overstressed, and then the environment of the child doesn't match that, that they become hyper-responsive to storing food. So in other words, they have a really strong propensity for obesity, heart disease, all these different things. And that's what we've seen. You know, the mother, as far as the body is seeing, looks like it's in a malnourished environment. But the child comes out and it's in a highly nourished environment. So that mismatch causes problems as well. So, you know, it's this... You know, that started with the mental health thing, you know, anxiety disorders, but diet affects things across the board. It doesn't just affect your life. It's going to affect the lives of your children and your unborn children. And, you know, knowing this, 
everybody, their number one concern every day should be their diet. And that's the beauty of something like, you know, carb night or even carb backloading is it's not difficult. You know, you're not worried about, am I allergic to this food? Is this food going to cause a reaction? Oh my gosh, does this food have cholesterol in it? Um, is this food high glycemic or low glycemic? It's so simple, you know, that it's really not difficult to address all of these things at once. And it, it's very frustrating to me. And you don't have to count calories. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, you know that it takes away so many stressors um, that, it, you know, it just, it amazes me. It, you know, at this point with the research and the things we know, I think it's criminal for the people who are making recommendations for a high carb diet and a lot of exercise. It's, we just know right. that that's a formula for disaster. Right. I mean, it's irresponsible at, in, in, in the least and criminal, at, you know, I think criminal is a better term for it because, and, you know, you wonder why people are confused. You wonder why, because yeah. there's just a plethora of bad information out there. And the people being their chest the hardest are people who are giving out the most inf- misinformation, which is really sad. I, I think the ironic thing about it is that patients or the public continue to take this advice at face value and they continue to get poor results or no results or get sicker, but there's no thinking of, well, maybe what I'm doing is wrong, even though the alternative seems so far-fetched. I, I think that's much more, even more surprising. Right. I mean, right. I mean, there's no critical thinking or the cause and effect or they just self-blame. Yeah. Because the experts have to be right, so it must be me, and it's just So, you know, unfortunately, we're pretty much ending on a down note. Do you have any happy stories? I have happy stories. Right before we go, Regine. I do have happy stories. I mean, really, again, you know, again, people who implement. Like a really quick one. We want to end on a high note. Yes, this is a high note. This is a high note. You know, you know, no, you know, I've had like one of my, one of my kids who was very highly motivated, my kids, I think he's 10 years old, maybe 11. And he started changing his diet and he started doing his behavior therapy on, you know, being consistent. I mean, he really has made gains and he was kind of borderline for being put on an SSRI medication. Of course, the parents didn't want that. I didn't want that either did the child, but he was just missing a lot of school and he was just kind of being plagued by these obtrusive thoughts and had a lot of compulsions and rituals. And he started implementing the behavior therapy and the nutrition. And guess what? He didn't have to go on medication. So that's to me, a big success story. I mean, he has his whole life in front of him and he's learning to manage his symptoms with behaviors. And uh, it's, I think that's a really good story. Positive. Did, did you cut out carbs for breakfast? There are no carbs for breakfast. Yeah, there's no nothing awesome. that even, you know, we just don't go down the cereal aisle at all. It's, that is the, the, the bad, awesome. that's the red zone. Yeah, that's, that's a good phrase. Mm-hmm. We call that the red. We do not go down that aisle. So, and, you know, and he really, I, I give him a lot of credit. I mean, he really wants to feel better and he really didn't want to be on medication either. So to his credit. And he's not, I mean, there's a lot of success stories. There really are. I mean, that's why I'm in this business. People say, why would you work with OCD? It's really hard or panic disorder because it's just, you can see the benefits. Yeah. I mean, you really do. And it's to the credit of my patients, but they really, you know, do alleviate, um, use these protocols and alleviate a lot of their symptomatology and, and they make gains and they live healthy lives. And they're just, you know, it's just a privilege to work with them. And, I really enjoy it because you see the benefits right then and there. Well, I 
you know, I would say that's why I do it and think that's why Rocky does it. Oh yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the responses from patients and when you help them be successful, that really is, I think the thing I find most rewarding, Yeah. you know, when a patient comes back and they've lost 10 or 12 pounds in the last, you know, four to eight weeks and they're feeling better and have more energy and they actually feel like for the first time they actually have grabbed hold of something and they've been able to turn something back the other way where that snowball was kind of going down the mountain. So that's yeah, uh, that, very that empowering, isn't it? Yeah, it's very it empowering and how rewarding as professionals that we, we have, you know, we see this, that people implement these strategies and their, their benefits and they feel good. And I think it's all about empowerment. Yep. I would totally agree. That's all my, everything I put out there is like, how can you master your body? Cause once you've got that mastered, you will never fear anything again. Totally agree. And same with the psychological. If you can beat OCD, yeah. boy, you can handle anything. Grouchy yeah. boss, a woman on PMS, you name it, you can handle it. Because well, okay, just, let's not yeah. go too far there. <laughs> that's, my men, how, yeah, that's my next book. Yeah, men will... How, to, how mm, to cope with a woman on, PP, on P, uh, PMS, so... Yeah, men will never men will never be in that <laughs> where they, they will say that coping with a woman with on PMS is simple. That, that's never going to happen. <laughs> But thanks so much for coming on the show, Regine. It was uh, a great topic and a little bit of field of what we normally do because we don't really talk about mental health that often on the show, and we probably should more because diet is such a huge factor in every facet of the body, whether it's the mind, the brain, the nervous system, the gut, whatever. You know, it's, it's such a massive component. So thanks for coming on and, and talking with us about uh, your patients and how you use diet to to treat these mental disorders and to, you know, I, I would imagine just get greater efficacy and be making healthy changes in their life, period, you know, trying to resist this weight gain and some of the negative side effects of the medication that often go ignored or, like you said, the psychiatrist just says, we'll deal with it. Right. Well, you know, it was we don't really have my pleasure. Um, and, I'm, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to get on here and, you know, and hopefully your listeners found it um, educational, useful, and and uh, informative for them. Yeah, I absolutely guarantee they will. It was a pleasure. Yeah. So we will talk again, Regine, and uh, have a good day. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. All right. And uh, this is Body.io FM signing off with another episode. been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.